an important part of working on stories about the real struggles and issues, sin patterns, anger, um, injustice that we have in our world is the ability to be able to also highlight the redemption process. Welcome to the Women in Work podcast, the show that inspires you to confidently step into your God-given calling and view your work as meaningful to the kingdom of God. I'm Courtney Moore. And I'm Missy Branch. We want to introduce you to women who, through their own unique vocations, are seeing what they do make an eternal difference. And we pray these conversations will inspire you in your own calling to honor God, to image Him to the world through your work, and to leverage your potential for His glory. Thank you so much for joining us today. Do you long to study the Bible more deeply and be better equipped to teach God's Word? That's why Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary offers a variety of flexible degree options that empower you to do just that. Through its diverse selection of certificate programs, master's degrees, and advanced degrees, Southeastern desires to equip women to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Southeastern believes that God has commanded each of us to go and make disciples by teaching His Word and sharing the truth about Jesus Christ. Southeastern would be privileged to play a part in your growth in His Word and your training to fulfill the Great Commission in all of life. To find out more, explore degree options, or to schedule a visit, check out sebts.edu. Hey guys, Courtney Moore here. You're really going to enjoy this episode with Carolyn McCulley today. But we did want to let you know up front that we cover some heavy topics that might be triggering to some listeners. Carolyn is a filmmaker, and we talk about her work in covering gun violence and sexual assault. We just wanted to give you a heads up if that type of content is not what you were expecting to hear today. As always, we love learning from women who take these hard subjects and seek to redeem them to the glory of God through their work. We hope you enjoy this episode. All right, listeners, we are so happy that you are joining us today. We have a really special guest. We have with us Carolyn McCulley. Um, let me tell you a little about her. She is a storyteller in multiple formats. She's a filmmaker. She's a podcast producer, and she's um, a host. She's also the author of several books. She has run her own production company since 2009, which has been a great way of experiencing God's faithfulness in many ways. So, Carolyn, we are so grateful to have you on. This is such a just a blast. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and I am grateful to be able to connect with you guys today. Thanks for having me on. This is so fun. So Courtney and I like to start off every one of our um, podcasts with rapid fire questions. So we want to send them to you. You ready? Hit me. Okay. First one is, as a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? I actually wanted to be a nun. Uh, and it's kind of funny because <laughs> because the reason for that was, you know, my family was Catholic growing up and we would go visit the nuns and my mom was friends with, and they had a huge color television screen. And I thought, is this how you get to be, get one of these things? Because we didn't, we didn't the have nuns that. Nuns are living their best life, and, so let me have it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. So it was kind of self, you know, fulfilling prophecy. I am single and I stare all day long at color screens. So I don't know. I knew oh, back then what it was going to be. Unbelievable. Well, we've not awesome. heard that. That's definitely Never. first. First, none is first. Yes. Okay. Love so it. you did not become a nun, but what was your first job? Oh, my first job was a waitress and I was terrible. <laughs> I would trip and spill things and, you know, I'd flinch when the food had roaches in it. You're not supposed to flinch. You're supposed to just take it away quietly, but I'd scream and I, oh I didn't work gosh. in a great restaurant. <laughs> oh my goodness. That sounds awful. 
Yeah. I feel like the scream would have been much more helpful to the uh, health of the patrons. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> it's a pretty nasty little place. Oh, my goodness. Okay. And the last question is, what kind of work do you want to be doing when you turn 80 years old? You know, I I don't want to still be working at 80 <laughs> in the sense of having a job with deadlines and uh-huh. having to stay up late and all that kind of stuff. But I still want to have impact and I want to be involved in the community and I want to be connected and making a difference. And I do believe that as we grow older, the thing that we should be growing in is our strength of our prayer life. Yeah. And I'm still no prayer warrior, but I do believe that when the depth of our relationship with the Lord increases and we know how to pray and intercede for others, we're very powerful, even if our bodies are weak. Mm. So I definitely want to be that woman who makes a difference in prayer. But also in terms of mentoring and relationships, I don't want to be checked out as I get older. I want to be able to make a difference in my community and not just sit back and, you know, play cards or whatever. Although I love having a good time. With else. <laughs> I love that. I love that answer. I do that's too. A, yeah. That's so encouraging. Right. Okay. So just give us a kind of just a kind of a, a brief kind of overview of, okay, tell us about you. Where did you mostly grow up? Where have you mostly lived? How did you come to Christ? Yeah, short version, right? Okay, because <laughs> that's always hard for me to do. Um, so I, I'm basically a native of DMV. That's what we call it, the District, Maryland, Virginia. Okay. Um, and so grew up here. Dad was in the Pentagon in a top secret program, but we didn't know it at the time. And so we stayed put. I was an, an Air Force brat who didn't have to move around a lot. And I had a brief encounter with a form of unbiblical Christianity when I was in high school, the youth pastor hit on me. I turned him in. It caused a huge split because I was just one of many young girls he was trying to prey upon. And so I left. The church had a big uproar, and I thought I'd seen it all from Catholicism to Pentecostalism, like I mentioned to you all earlier. And so I just was like, I'm done. I'm done with the church. But my sister, my younger sister, became a Christian through crew in college, and she patiently shared the gospel with me for years. I didn't listen to her. And then she moved to South Africa, and I went to visit her there. And then I heard the gospel there in its entirety Mm -hmm. for the first time in South Africa. But it was also right as South Africa was getting ready to change, um, and there was a huge push in racial reconciliation, and apartheid was about to fall. And I saw the church at the forefront of this. Wow! And the church that we were in that Sunday, although in hindsight, probably I wouldn't agree with a lot of the theology— they were truly committed to this racial reconciliation piece. And it was the only place in South Africa that I saw was truly integrated. Wow. And that really bore witness to me. And hmm. so I became a Christian and I came back and I was <laughs> such a hot mess. And my church, like people misunderstood things. So somehow or another, the rumor got out that I was a missionary who'd come back from South Africa. So when I'd sit in small group and go, wow, I didn't even know that was in the Bible. People were like, I thought she said she was a missionary, you know, and it was like, what? So, oh, yeah. so great. I, was, I was a mess, but um, I I am very grateful f- to those who patiently discipled wow. me. I love, I love how the Lord works and what a witness that church was to you. So beautiful. Yes. Okay. So we talked about you being a storyteller and um, your main job is producing films. You have the podcast and you've written and you also speak at places, but I just kind of wanted to give our listeners uh, more of a depth of, of what you're doing. And so yes. you began um, CityGate Films. You started that in 2009. Mm-hmm. You have directed, produced, and edited nearly 200 short films for clients 
um, while you're work, also working on your own film projects. I was surprised to read this. I mean, you've produced content for clients like Discovery, WebMD, AstraZeneca. I mean, who hasn't seen the AstraZeneca commercials, y'all? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, I didn't do those. <laughs> <laughs> um, Adventure Scientist, Chick-fil-A, Capital One, um, IJM. We've, I've heard of that, International Justice uh, Mission and also other um, numerous nonprofits. And so this was interesting. Your most widely viewed short film has been seen by more than 6 million people and was the inspiration for a segment in Oprah's Belief series. I mean, wow. Mm -hmm. Carolyn, wow. Wow. And then you have um, some independent films. One, I was surprised at the title, The Rage of Evil. Okay, Mm -hmm. we have to talk about this. It was about a former school shooter, um, but that Mm -hmm. was even acquired by HuffPost. And now you're working on another film called, currently working on a film called Out of Darkness, which really talks about um, what you just mentioned, some of the sexual abuse crisis coming out of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, And so Mm -hmm. we can also chat about that. You have a podcast, as we talked about, The Courage to Face Failure, which is also about the same subject. And um, you're the author of three books. Now, I will tell you, Carolyn, This is why I was so excited to have you on. Your book, The Measure of Success, the tagline is called Uncovering the Biblical Perspective on Women Work in a Home. This was really pivotal. It was, God really used that book to not just help me, but actually lead me to start Women in Work. And so it came at right, at just the right time. And um, I just thank God for you and that book. And you you co-wrote it with Nora Shank. I want to give her credit too. She had a co-author there. Um, so you have just a ton going on. Tell us just start, how did you become interested in filmmaking and producing all this digital content? It goes back to that same time period when I wanted to be a nun, uh, was kindergarten because that's when you get started with show and tell. And I loved the power of coming in and showing somebody an object and talking about it and seeing everyone's attention. So, you know, I'm definitely the oldest child and you can tell that, you know, <laughs> I like to be large and in charge, the boss. And then, you know, the, my family calls me the director of ambiance because it's like, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and uh, so I've always been about that. But as I've gotten older, it was less about entertainment. I, I never went the path of entertainment because impact was the most important to me. So the ability to see lives changed and people affected spiritually, or even in the clients that I work with, um, the services they offer, the, um, the products that they have for Im- improving human flourishing, those have always been important. There's definitely a lot more money to be made in entertainment. <laughs> I chose the uh-huh. least lucrative <laughs> form of this work, but the ability to see people, uh, you see their stories preserved, to see them memorialized, Sadly, we have a lot of people who passed after we filmed them, and so their stories being captured are important to the families, and those moments are just important to me, and and the trust that people extend to me to tell me their most important stories, and they're usually their hardest trials, and they allow me to represent this in film or other forms like the book. Um, I'm just honored by that trust, and I seek to make sure that that is worthy of their trust and that we've been accurate. And um, so, you know, it's 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 an opportunity to really get to know people well, and I'm grateful for that those moments and the ability to to edit and tell stories and integrate, uh, whether it's in audio or film or print. So, what does the process of learning how to do this? look like. I um, can think of the things 
I was a, a, a baker and like a cake decorator, but like my first 100 cakes looked like death because I was self-taught, right? So how does someone acquire the skills for this type of work, like in your educational background, your on-the-job training, what does that look like? Yeah, actually, like everything else in my life, I did it backwards or the hard way. Um, <laughs> and so, yes, so in, in film specifically, there are programs, you know, there are film schools. Mm-hmm. That can be a very expensive way to learn, and this is a, an industry that rewards your last project more so than your educational achievements. If you want to teach, you definitely want to have your master's degree, for sure. But, uh, you know, unless you're able to get into something like New York Film School or uh, other top film schools where the relational network is going to be very important, then having a degree isn't as important as being able to learn on the job. And there are tons and tons and tons of, of tutorials online that will teach you. So I started off as a producer and writer and director. I hired people to shoot. I hired people to edit. But at one point, we needed to switch software. And I said, okay, I'm going to learn to edit along with you guys. And the whole staff was like, no, don't touch the buttons. I'm like, oh, no, I'm touching the buttons. And they're like, don't touch the buttons. I was like, I'm touching them. touching them. And I learned this current software that we use right now, Adobe Premiere. I learned that along with them. And what I came to find out is when you know the technical issues down in the weeds, you're much better when you're in the field. You can anticipate like, yeah, that shot's not going to cut it. That's not going to cut. Even though I had a sense as a director before, when you're actually trying to solve it on the timeline, you're like, oh, why didn't we think of this? And you just develop kind of a rhythm in your own head. So this is an industry in which uh, on-the-set experience is really important, but your location is super important. Even in this, you know, post-pandemic world, it's still uh, being close to the centers of production are important. And I didn't choose that. I chose to stay in the D.C. area for my family and other friendships, my church. So, you know, I didn't pursue the New York and L.A. route. Um, But, you know, you have to decide what kind of work you want to do. And then you have to decide what you're willing to give up. Hmm. And this is an industry that demands everything of you. And I like the work, but I'm not willing to be gone for months on end. I'm not willing to work 16, 18, 20-hour days it's physically demanding. And I think the industry could do better. I don't think we have to, to be so grueling on ourselves and our health, but it's also a very uncertain industry. So I have sympathy for producers that are trying to stretch every penny. So the balance is hard. So is it taxing physically because you're traveling to locations all the time? Is that what you mean by that? Yeah. In production on the set, you'll usually start really early and you can go really long and there'll be a lot of reasons that you as a crew member aren't in control of what the weather is like or why you had to have a break or what accident happened or something. And so, you know, when you're in a production and if you're on a film set, you can be there for months and working really long hours. If you're in commercials, it'll be shorter, you know, maybe a week shoot, but you'll be gone and you'll, it'll be like a no sleep kind of scenario. And so it's just hard. It's hard on the body. And, and the more we learn about sleep patterns and its effect on cognitive health, the more you're like, ah, what are we doing to ourselves? <laughs> like, exactly. this isn't good. And yes. even editing is taxing because you're in like this like zone where you're just hunched over and you're sitting and you're just hours staring at the screen. And yeah. I am completely committed to Pilates now. 
without Pilates, I would never survive sitting in a chair. And that, <laughs> that sounds so lame, right? You know, but you're just all tensed up, et cetera. And you have to get out and work different muscles in your core, or you won't be able to sit and take the physicality because editing, you're also needing to make deadlines. You're up until two, three, four AM, you know, <sighs> both ends of the industry can be sleepless. Goodness gracious. I didn't realize that. I mean, you don't have to, but everyone tries to plan to not do it. And then something always happens. It's not like the industry starts out going, sure. Yeah, no, we're going to sacrifice our health. And it's just, there's so many variables, so many sure. variables. Yeah. So interesting. So you, you might've already mentioned this um, a minute ago, but what is it that you love most about storytelling? You know, what really excites you about telling people's stories? And then as a Christian doing this, you know, how are you, how do you see God in the process of storytelling? Well, you've just hit the nail on the head there. I mean, Jesus was the master storyteller. And to this day, we still yeah. reference things. Um, and we reference biblical stories. We reference archetypes in there. And uh, they mean something to us. And so story is how we process our experience through life. So if you're not in touch with, and and here I'm going to sound a little bit more like therapeutic and counseling, but um, if you don't know your story and what what you operate out of, what your life experience is, what you fear, what you don't, then you, you just kind of operate on a robotic and repetitive um, process in life. And you you live an unexamined life and you don't think about, oh, well, the story I'm telling myself about this situation is X. Is this accurate? Does someone need to challenge it? Is this what God would say about it? And, uh, and so story is just how we neurobiologically process so much of our life experience. And it's how we inspire one another. And I think that's really most important to me. I'm currently in the midst of um, doing a community activism project um, that I won't get in here because <laughs> it's really dull about zoning and airports and stuff like that. But in it, you know, it is a matter of reminding everybody that what we're trying to do, we're not, you know, everyone's like, this is a David and Goliath story. And I'm like, yes, and David won. <laughs> You know what I mean? Right. So if your point is we can do it, we can do it. And I have to keep using storytelling even within this volunteer team to remind them like what we're trying to do is the norm in 98% of other airports around the nation. <laughs> David won. You know, I mean, like That's all great. this stuff, you have to keep casting vision for the labor. And so even brands, when they, they hire me, um, we'll talk about what are their metrics of success. Like, what are you trying to do with your story? And sometimes they're trying to tell the wrong story. They're trying to tell something about their own corporate culture that only people inside the corporate culture would care about, and it's never going to go viral. So I'll say, let's let's like go around the corner and look at your service or your mission or your product from the perspective of your end user, your customer. And let's tell about how they are affected and impacted by this. And that will have far more pathos, have far more authenticity and go viral like you want it, not your other internal measurements that are very important to you as a corporate culture, but nobody cares on the outside. So I think about just as Christians and we work in these different corporations and we our, our corporations have these um, their own ethics or ethos, like you were saying, Often it's hard to see how what we're doing is valuable in that thing, right? So, but with filmmaking, and because it's like storytelling and what you just said was like, 
God is the master storytelling, I can see how it would be, it would seem, oh yeah, it's easy for me to see how this models Christ. But how would you say that you experience being a light to the world or a light to your employees or coworkers? How do you experience that as a filmmaker? Honestly, I think the hardest part of reflecting Christ in my work is reflecting is reflecting Christ when you're on deadline. Mm. Honestly, the product, uh, no matter what you do, the product, if you're any good at your job is, is going to be good, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, why you, you got hired to do a job because you're competent generally. And if you keep up with that and you keep investing in what you need to do to do your job, the learning curve, the work that you need to do to stay current, you're going to be good at your job. The harder thing is working with other human beings. <laughs> and that's where being Christ-like is really important and where under pressure and on deadlines has been my greatest temptation. And I think for others too, in terms of failure, it's, Mm. are you going to accept and own your own mistakes? Are you going to be patient when other people mess up? I have plenty of illustrations (laughs) and I'm sure if any of my colleagues are listening to this, they're like, oh yeah, I remember that time. Mm." Um, And are you going to be willing to uh, hear somebody rebuke you? Mm. Um, or give you feedback, which, you know, mm-hmm. we don't use rebuke too often in the workplace. But anyway, <laughs> um, I I actually had a younger crew member years ago when I was writing my second book and we were also filming. Um, and that was a terrible. I mean, it was a terrible set of circumstances. I was filming all day and ho- going back to my hotel room and working on chapters. And Gosh. I mean, it, it wasn't wise planning. I definitely overestimated my capacity to do this kind of stuff. And I took out my stress on the shoot the next day. And this young man took me aside and he said, as the director, you set the tone for the crew. And you are in a really tough situation, but you have got to bring it and get it together. And I was like, okay, thank you. And, you know, he was a brother in Christ and he was speaking to me at that point as a brother in Christ, he Mm -hmm. could have been fired if we didn't have that bond. I didn't recognize the position that he was speaking from. Right. But he was totally true. He, He, it was accurate and it was a good feedback. So I think personally it's, how do you behave when you don't get what you want, when you're strategizing for something and when you're under deadline? And I don't think I'm saying anything novel. I think we all recognize that. But learning to regulate yourself is really important. And learning, again, coming back to story, there are so many things that we learn in childhood that drive our understanding of the world. And then we take them with us into the workplace. Mm -hmm. It's crazy how many of our origin stories shape how we respond you know, are you back to being little Carolyn? Do you think that nobody pays attention to you? Do you feel like you have to be bossy? You know, whatever right. it is. Right. And if, if you're not curious about your own story and do the work to understand like, oh, this is how I'm driven. This is my craving, et cetera. And it's, it's beyond how sometimes we can speak of it in the church. The church sometimes just has a few categories. Is it sin or idolatry? But there's so many nuances within that and so many things that transcend that, especially when you come to the issue of abuse, Um, you know, themes of safety and rescue and deliverance and righteousness Mm -hmm. aren't easily pegged to just sin or idolatry. So anyway, you know, we need to have um, some good understanding and depth of how we process ourselves. And I think, and maybe it's just because I'm single, I think the job is one place where all of that's revealed. Other people might say marriage. I can understand that Mm -hmm. too. But you know, in marriage, you have a depth of a relationship that somebody would know how to push your buttons. And on the workplace, you have like 
five to 25 to 2,500 people who can figure mm-hmm. out how to do that too mm-hmm. in varying ways. So that's, I think, how we conduct ourselves is the biggest way in which we can reflect Christ. And for me, that's always been the biggest test. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's excellent. It's so true. Yeah. Um, it's such a place to become sanctified. It's, mm-hmm. it's You make choices every day of how you respond and how you deal with it. So Carolyn, you've worked on some films that have some pretty dark topics. We mentioned the title of one called The Rage of Evil, and then um, your current uh, work is dealing with the subject of sexual abuse. So just curious, like what interests you about these things? Um, And tell us a little bit more about the first movie, The Rage of Evil. And then how do you stay encouraged as you're, I mean, you're talking about these long hours that you're thinking and processing these. How are you staying above that? An important part of working on stories about the real struggles and issues, sin patterns, anger, um, injustice that we have in our world is the ability to be able to also highlight the redemption process. Mm-hmm. In both of the films that you mentioned, um, one's still in production, so I'm hoping that we will capture a redemption arc here. Um, but it, you know, with the school shooter film, uh, I was fascinated that this was a middle-aged man who'd paid his debt to society. He committed a crime prior to school shooting becoming a thing. And he was really provoked when Nicholas Cruz, the Parkland shooter, and he's back in the news with his sentencing mm-hmm. this week. The way he talked about the voices that spoke to him, TJ Stevens, the man in my film, could identify. And what he really wanted people to understand is there, there is an evil component to this. There are voices that will tell you to kill, and we can process that through the lens of mental illness or the lens of evil. I think they overlap personally, mm. and, and it's important to understand from somebody's experience who's been through it, like, I want to tell you, I know that voice. So we sat down with him. He had not seen any of the footage of Nicholas Cruz, and we played back the jailhouse interview while TJ was watching, and his reaction you know, it was remarkable. He was triggered, wow. as we would say, watching this. Um, wow. But he had also seen the work that the Lord had done in his life, and he also wanted to offer hope. So after that film came out, he published a book, and he's been talking to youth groups, et cetera, to share the gospel. And the film itself was not explicitly Christian. It was really intended for a larger audience to be able to say, like, do we recognize the voice that says, take the the life of an image bearer of God. Do we recognize what's going on there? And um, and so, you know, people ask me, like, did you think he was, you know, mentally ill? Were you ever feeling unsafe in his presence? And I was like, no, <laughs> TJ is like this, this little happy grandfather, you know? Mm. Um, and so he, he had done a lot of work. You know, do, does he carry scars from the family issues that drove him to do this? Yes. Um, he asked me to put boundaries around the topic. Um, and, and most people in documentary films will say, I will tell you my part of the story. This is the boundary I have about how it affects other people. And you have to be willing to honor that. And I did. Um, and so, you know, there's some gaps in his story that we didn't fill out because that's how he preferred it. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, to, to be able to, delve into the mind of somebody who's walked through it, I thought was really important. And HuffPost saw that too. And I was grateful that they understood that we do need to hear because so few mass shooters survive it. 
So yes. now in the age of social media, we have their rantings beforehand in social media or online right. um, or their criminal records, but we don't have the midlife reflections of somebody who can look back and say, here's how I process that. And I thought it was important to hear. Wow. Wow. I think it's fascinating, really, because you want to learn from what happened, how did that person get there, and then how can you move forward in a redemptive way? I love that that's what you really highlighted there was the redemptive aspect of some of these darker stories. You know, and that's the same with the sexual abuse crisis, Um, and not just related to the Southern Baptist Convention. I have, for the last 10 to 12 years of my life, walked through in friendship a number of women who've been processing their childhood abuse or abuse in church context, not necessarily clergy sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. And I I have seen God at work. And so when the Me Too movement started, there were a lot of young women in my church at the time who were very discouraged about what was happening. And I said, all right, let grandma come in and let's talk about this now. <laughs> and I said, mm-hmm. you know, when I was a kid, Rape wasn't a serious crime. We didn't mm-hmm. have rape crisis counseling centers. Right. The first one was in D.C. in 1971. Um, there was a lot that was tolerated. Marital rape wasn't even very clear. Um, just how much has changed in my own life is remarkable. So you might be looking right now and seeing God upending all kinds of stuff. He's like, son, I don't care what your platform is. I don't care how many books you've sold. I don't care how many conferences you've spoken at. I have been disciplining you about that hidden sin. And if you won't repent, cover is coming off right now. And he is just clearing house in the church. And so I say, this should encourage us. This should make us stand up and say, Lord, you are holy and righteous and worthy of our praise. But that's so good. good. Along with that, you are working on a film called Out of Darkness. Um, And obviously, you also have a podcast, Courage to Face Failure. And both of those deal with sexual abuse crisis in the SBC. What are your goals? What do you want to see come from that? And what message uh, do you want women, particularly in the SBC, to hear from this work? And I'd also love to hear how you even, what was the moment that you said, I need to do this? So one of my friends is at the center of this controversy, and I've known her story for a long time. And we talked about making a film, but I was never interested in making a film unless she was healthy enough to proceed. I wanted to uh, produce something in a trauma-informed way. I was already aware of how films can positively and negatively impact their subjects. Mm -hmm. And her health was of most importance. Mm-hmm. So when her therapist said, I think you can go forward, um, we brought Rachel Den Hollander on board and I slowly began to reach out to other survivors and get to know them through remote filming process because it was the pandemic. And as we built this story, things began to rapidly change inside the Southern Baptist Convention. And so in the summer of 2021, And a surplus of people, a sudden surge showed up when things began to be revealed in the news. And nobody knew, like, it's still 2021. It's still pandemic time. And I think it was 15,000 people showed up in Nashville for this event. And um, no one knew why the surge came. Was it people who were concerned about what was being revealed or was it people who were wanting to fight it? But at a very critical moment, there was a floor vote called. And it was a vote to investigate the Southern Baptist Convention. And a sea of yellow flags went up. This is their voting mechanism, these little yellow ballots. And it was nearly unanimous that the members of the Southern Baptist Convention who showed up to vote 
wanted an investigation and they wanted to waive attorney-client privilege, which was huge. But it also meant like, no, we're serious about understanding the potential charges that are being brought against our leadership. That part of the story is important because it shows you that there are people inside churches who have been perhaps unaware, uninformed, or gaslit, any of the above, uh, who don't understand what's been happening or were managed so that when things start to come out, they're like, oh, no, 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 we're going to be looking into this. And that investigation then led to reforms that are ongoing now. Are they slow? Yes. Are some of the survivors going, really? Could we could we move this at a little faster pace? Yes. Mm. It is a very large denomination. There are a lot of politics that go on. Mm-hmm. But the movement, it, the trend is toward taking this seriously and doing something about it. Yeah. And I can understand the perspective of the survivors who are like, this isn't fast enough. But from a storytelling arc, I'm hoping that we will end up seeing the Southern Baptists develop a model that is survivor-centric that could be used by other large institutions around our nation, secular and Christians, faith-based or not, to be able to confront the mechanics of a large institution that make it easy to cover up abuse. Will this happen? I don't know. I'm not telling the story. I'm tracking the story. But I really wanted to tell the story of the women who've been at this for decades, Mm. calling for righteous, lone voices saying this is wrong and this needs to change. And this is their day of vindication. So how can our listeners support you in this making of this film? And then when it comes out, how they know how to see it? Uh, independent filmmaking <laughs> is like this long journey of pushing rocks uphill, trying to get all the parts to come together. So my film is fiscally sponsored and it's fiscally sponsored by the Southern Documentary Fund. What that means is they are the nonprofit that can receive tax deductible donations to, towards the film. And so I've been fundraising through that. I've been fundraising through grants. It's a hard industry. It's an industry that in itself is in the middle of contraction and change and uh, some premier funding organizations are shutting down. So I also started the podcast because I could get that out on my own to just document these moments and change. And so that's what the courage to face failure is about. But to answer your question, you may visit southerndocumentaryfund.org, search for Out of Darkness and make your donation there. Awesome. We'll definitely let them know about that. Okay. So let's talk about, um, you know, you have really been interested in topics of just womanhood for a very long time. Um, I feel like this question, it's a shift from what we were just talking about, first of all. So let me, you know, prep our listeners for that. Um, And I also feel like this might be, uh, the answer might be too long for our purposes, but I feel like there, there is so much history involved in how we, women got to where we are today, especially in regards to work. And you guys did a ton of research on this for the measure of success, the book. I mean, is there any way you can kind of, in just as briefly as you can, just mention kind of the historical backdrop to like where we are today with sort of the divide between, you know, your stay-at-home mom world versus, you know, you're out in the marketplace working women, because there's a whole history there that really mm-hmm. led us to where we are today and how we're trying to navigate that now, especially from a b- biblical perspective. Yeah, it is a complicated history, and it's complicated because it's more than one culture storyline. The storyline that would have been told historically about you, Courtney, would be very different than the storyline that would have been told about Missy. 
And that's one thing that we would need to recognize that when we talk about women at work, we uh, need to define what are we talking about here? Mm. Um, The white Southern woman's experience would be very different from the African-American woman's experience and the Northern woman's experience um, working in textile mills, et cetera, would be different. But the the long and the short of it is uh, women were always intended to work. (laughs) And historically, you know, if you would have asked the question, should women work? Most people would have been like, I'm sorry, do you want food? Do you want clothes? What are you talking about? <laughs> right. It, it was really only the industrial revolution that changed the location of work. Um, so the home was always a small business unit of the local economy and families often labored together. There would be divisions of labor, but there was never the sense that uh, children were idle until age 25 or so. And <laughs> that you know, women didn't produce something that was a cash economy. And we can see this clearly in Proverbs 31, the implication Mm -hmm. of management, trade and sales and employees is all laid out clearly there. But the industrial revolution changed that. And uh, upper class women then had time and opportunity to think about how do we shape our world? How do we still work in labor? So there was still this idea that women's work was important. So we had the golden age of domesticity in the 1800s where women were affecting issues around alcoholism, around child labor, around uh, tenement slums, et cetera. So they were just not paid for it, but they were still having an impact. And so when we talk about women and work and we talk about this time frame of you know, the experience that we tend to glorify either in the 1950s or other eras, Victorian era, we need to recognize that we're reading our modern experience into scriptures. And we need to understand what the original uh, scripture readers would have understood about work. And then also how capitalism shifted the locus of work and how it, it changed us. And I'm, I'm by no means not, you know, I'm not slamming capitalism. It right. needs some reforms for sure. But, uh, but you know, the fact of the matter is, is that we have to be very clear when we look at scriptures that we're not just l- reading it through the lens of nostalgia for the 1950s. And I say this actually, nostalgia for 1950s that didn't actually exist. It wow. was the era of great mass commercial. We had first national television broadcast in 1951. And so that began to change the stories we told ourselves. Hmm. It was different than what our realities were. And we need to recognize that in our nostalgia today. That's fascinating. I love Very. that you picked that up as a filmmaker too. Like that, yes. you notice that as a filmmaker, because I mean, as soon as I hear 1950s, June Cleaver, I mean, that's the image right. that Leave it to Beaver pops in your mind of these, you know, put together women dressed in heels, vacuuming their floor. <laughs> I mean, it just, it, right. you know. Um, I think you're, uh, thank you for sharing that. That is. And you know what? There are a lot of people who push back on feminism and and feminism is a political movement and is a theological substitution. Mm -hmm. They have reasons for good critique, but the feminists did see a lot of things that needed to be changed. Among them was the idea of this mass communication, this mass propaganda of you're going to be satisfied by your stuff. Let us sell you floor wax and ovens and shirtwaist dresses and pearls. And this is going to fill your soul. And they were like, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. Wow. So people in the general grace of God can look at something and accurately describe the problem. It's just their worldviews will then drive their interpretation and solution of it. And uh, but, you know, there were a lot of people who accurately said there's some problems here. Wow, Carol, 
Carolyn, this is just what you said really speaks to an experience I've had as a woman who was at home for a while and felt like it was crazy that I wasn't completely satisfied with that being my whole world and almost feeling guilty mm-hmm. by that. Um, but yeah, so, but you, you mentioned the idea of there being a feminist that uh, a feminism that is cultural or political and a feminism that is biblical. And I know that you have said that you were a feminist before coming to Christ. So how did becoming a Christian change your perspective on womanhood? Well, I would actually say there's been several layers in that journey. Um, and we probably don't have time to unpack that here. I had a very cultural form of feminism before I became a Christian. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't politically active. I didn't go to marches. Um, mm-hmm. um, but it was just sort of more the ethos that was in the air. You know? um, so when I became a Christian, I became part of a church that held out a vision for relationships with men and women that was, it was uh, very appealing to me at the time because it called men to account. It called men to a kind of servant leadership. And that was the buzzword at the time. And so I was really drawn by this vision. It was something that was different than I'd experienced growing up. And the vision, I think, was good. But after decades, I began to see that it wasn't always uh, lived out well. And in fact, there were a lot of imbalances. And you can look back now on some of the things that we held in high esteem in the 90s, and you can see the negative fruit of it 20 years later. So there was this effort to kind of put Christian labels on a lot of things, and they were surrounding the performance, the behavior, and the appearance, and the life of women generally. So, you know, you had the purity culture, which on the surface seemed like a very good way to honor God. What it did do instead was put parameters um, around people in such a way that it became uh, a movement to enforce things that on the surface would legalistically be protecting people from sin and did nothing about the huge sin that was developing at the same time. So you see this huge rise in the crisis of sexual abuse at the same time you saw the huge rise in the purity movement. And Mm -hmm. this was trying to establish boundaries around sin and contain sin by containing women. And that wasn't the issue. (laughs) That did nothing for sin. You could see the same thing around the Christian finance movement. There's been a lot of problems with that. You can see a lot around homeschool movement. Uh, It was guaranteed to give you these kids that were going to be vastly different. And it too had issues. I mean, everything that we tried to put a Christian label on it and say, this, this is the key. And I lived through that the group of churches I was a part of had the answer for everything. <laughs> it wow. wasn't the answer. And so over time it's tempered me a little bit. And so that's why I would say my understanding of womanhood has also changed and developed. I yeah. very much hold scriptures in high esteem, but I also see where certain people had, um, very strict interpretations and, and therefore very strict um, behavior boundaries that were extra legal, they, that were extra biblical. They were not um, maybe extra legal. Too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, so I, I have seen the negative fallout of trying to contain sinful impulses through 
managing the behavior of women and nothing didn't and none of that did anything to really substantially change the darkness in the church wow yeah it's so huge i mean what you're talking wow. about here is it's a generation of women who lived through this i'm one of them yes um who was mm-hmm. breathed that air bought mm-hmm. in hook line and sinker i mean the true love weights movement I mean, I had the, I had the necklace, you're talking about the purity rings, Mm -hmm. you know, and I was just listening this week and uh, to just the Bible app, Colossians chapter Mm -hmm. two and three. And, you know, in there, it talks about, um, man-made rules and it says, you know, you hear these things, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch these rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use are based merely on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And then it starts chapter three. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you die and your life is hidden with Christ. And then Christ, who is your life, when he appears, you will also appear with him in glory. And just these rules that we really, again, they have the appearance of wisdom. They have the appearance of, Mm -hmm. you do this, you will be godly. You will be holy. Mm -hmm. You, if you do these man-made traditions that we're now imposing are righteous and holy, the outcome over here is going to be amazing. And we all bought it. And it's just, it's fascinating for you to put words on I feel like I'm still coming out of that now. I'm still discovering, mm-hmm. well, what does the Bible actually say about womanhood? You know, what what does Christ want for women? Of course, it is sexual purity, um, but there's a, a certain way to go about it. There's, And it mainly has to do with the heart. Right. There was such an effort to avoid the appearance of evil while actually not addressing real evil. There were churches that heard rumors. They would see grooming. I think if there's one thing I would love to come out of this film is a impact screening campaign where we're able to go in and talk to churches about this is what a groomer looks like who grooms an entire community. This is what predatory behavior looks like. These are the kinds of things that should make you go, hmm? And ask some questions. The lack of curiosity that people can exhibit around things is appalling to me. Pastors are like, yeah, I heard that was this kind of a strange relationship going on with this youth pastor and his kids, but, you know, just wasn't curious. (laughs) I didn't look into it. Yeah, Yeah, just just let it go. Let it go. One of the things we all heard about in terms of just these man-made rules was the Billy Graham rule which, you know, history kind of states that when Billy Graham, the famous evangelist, would travel, you know, he would not um, be in a car alone with anyone. He would never be alone with another female. And while, again, there is an essence of that that is wise, um, it also really limits, can limit women in even the workplace um, because it really excludes them from possibly important meetings that they could have had input. Um, There's a lot of things there. So no doubt in your own life, I mean, you are working with men on these films. um, And so you are, and then even just as a single woman, no doubt you are having friendships with the opposite sex. And so how are you, especially coming out of what we just talked about, really coming out of that type of culture, 
how are you navigating those types of working relationships and men, male friendships in a way that's healthy and God honoring? So the Billy Graham rule was something that Billy Graham developed out of his own conscience and his own uh, prayerful consideration, as we've heard before the Lord. But the thing is, is that was his personal conviction. And when that then gets turned into a law for everybody, what happens is we actually end up violating the Pauline commandment for people in the church to treat each for people in the church to treat each other's family, to treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters. And the key part of that is you have family relationships because you know each other. You don't keep your mother stiff-armed and never talk to her or make eye contact with her. You don't ignore your sister and know nothing about her life story. You have relationships. And what he's saying is treat people in the church with the purity of these relationships, not stiff arm them, not side hug them awkwardly, not ignore them or put them off in other ministries and be like completely unaware of what's happening in their lives. That's not a family. So if you don't have those family relationships, the temptation will be to give terrible counsel based Mm -hmm. around a a, a legalistic principle rather than a truly God honoring and, and uh, driven in the need to see your, your, the women in your life as sisters, not as somebody yeah. else's wife that you have to manage or somebody else's future spouse that you have to stay clear of. None of that, as we can see in the 20 years since this movement got started, bred anything healthy. It didn't. And so right. we need to return back to scriptures and be like, how are we actually told to interact with each other? And if we do that, then we're actually curious about the harm that could happen to our sisters or brothers. We would be curious about whether or not our mothers and our fathers are, are healthy and good places. We don't delegate them to someone else like, well, that is somebody else's present or future responsibility. I have, you know, I'm just a member of this church at large, but I have no family. That is not the right answer. Right. This is, this is good. Well, when I hear you share that you have tons of stories about the awkward nature of what has been produced in this. Even as married women, we have those experiences. But no, so then it makes me think back to your first book when you wrote, um, it was titled, Did I Kiss Marriage Goodbye? The tagline was trusting God with a hope deferred. So now you wrote this in 2004 and quite a lot has changed. (laughs) <laughs> we've Girl. learned a lot since 2004 so what has not changed is still right. how bad that title was oh. <laughs> no it was perfect no. for the we time though it. We, we, it was, we it careful was careful genius for the time are you kidding me yeah we got it we got genius. it um but so but what are your thoughts on singleness today do you still feel like marriage is hope deferred and when you, we all got to see Nancy Lee DeMoss get married later. We mm-hmm. also now really get to see women who are single all of their lives kill it for Jesus and not That's look right. like they have something deferred. So with those two right. things, how do you view singleness now? That book was written largely in response to the evangelical church's idolatry of marriage and family. Um, and I, I say idolatry, I, I think uh, in a clear-eyed way. There was so much that you needed to reclaim and uphold um, against the culture in terms of the value of marriage and family. That definitely needed to be done. 
But we crossed over a line and just made it all about healthy marriages yes. and the church needs to have healthy couples. And, this, and we were doing all sorts of things to trip that up instead. And so I had to stand there and say, you know what? I'm going to be the awkward single woman who calls this out, but marriage is only a gift for this life because it points to what Jesus is doing for all eternity. And so if it ends in this life, shouldn't we be spending more time thinking about what carries on into eternity? And because we spent so much time talking about marriage and family, and again, please don't misunderstand me. It is very important to talk about marriage and family, but you have to put it in the context of the family of God or you end up with the imbalance that we all experienced. And so when you do that, then you leave a whole swath of the church in a place of like, what am I? Am I a holding tank? And I, you know, I got on the circuit with, bless him, but Dr. Albert Moeller, when he came out saying marriage equals maturity. And I was like, excuse me, I don't have any of your degrees, but I've been single all my life. So let's talk about the single man's promise named Jesus, the single man's (laughs) promise for our maturity. Thank you. Okay. And, you know, he he loved that. And, um, and so, you know, and and you know what he's part of this film too so i've i've stayed in touch with him and i you know i think we should be able to disagree with one another mm-hmm. in healthy ways because healthy we ways, don't see yes. things clearly right and he did receive that and hear it from me i don't in a, in a godly way i don't know that it changed his opinion but he heard from me um and so you know when we don't have um that eternal family of god in mind all kinds of squirreliness comes out so mm. that's what the book was about was like hey the emphasis is on the noun you're a woman made in the image of god and the church puts the emphasis on the adjective you're single or married yes and uh, one of my friends just kind of shrunk that down to swife meaning apostrophe s yes, wife you're the pastor's swife you're the youth leader's <laughs> wife <laughs> whatever you're your husband's swife you know it's like it's always about the swife and so true. I, so true. yeah and Jesus had single and married women ministering to him. His mm-hmm. finance team was a mixture of single and married women. And so when I have the opportunity to address uh, teams of pastors, and I, I do, they kindly ask me to dinner or whatever the night before I come in to speak at a church. And I appreciate that hospitality and that time to hear from them, to understand how they're leading their churches so that I don't step into something because I'm really good. I have the gift of bringing up something awkward if you don't warn me ahead of time. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, often I'm asked, like, what can we do to improve on this? And one of the things I say is, I'm just here speaking as a sister in Christ. I'm not trying to tell you what to do. I'm giving you the perspective of my opinion and, and my life. There are tons of examples of women in faith in scripture, and we don't hear sermons about them. There's an entire Mm. book in the Bible that I can only count in nearly 30 years of being a Christian, two pastors who ever taught on the book of Ruth. And there are tons of female examples, and we don't hear them from the pulpit. So could you maybe bring up Elizabeth and Mary in Advent? Could you... You know, talk about Hannah. Could you bring up Lydia? Could you? I mean, there are so many women, and people might say, "Well, they're you know, they're just here, just it's very limited portrait." And I'm like, "Okay," (laughs) but the Holy Spirit still inspired them to be there, so you can unpack that. Exactly. You know, and I think that's really important for pastors to preach from that perspective, so that not only do they start to study uh, examples of feminine faith in Scripture, but it builds their vision and capacity for understanding how that works for the women mm-hmm. in their church. 
Yes. And we have to find ways to include the voices of women in churches. There has to be ways that don't violate the consciences and the polity of churches while still not shutting out the voices of the mothers and sisters mm-hmm. that are in the family of God. Mm-hmm. Amen. 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 Wholeheartedly agree with that. Okay. Well, as we wrap up, thank you for everything you've shared so far. Um, if you could just leave women who are hearing you, they're probably resonating with a ton of, of what you're saying and they felt that because they've lived it and they're coming out of that. And everyone's just trying to do their best to just, take the next step of faith into what God has called them to. Um, what what advice do you want to give women? It could be about, you know, what we were just saying with the kind of cultural womanhood issue, or it could just be even just about their vocational work. I almost want to say I have no advice for women. And the reason why I say that is because <laughs> we have entire publishing industries and podcasts and everything that exists to give advice to women. And sometimes I just want to say, please spend more time listening to God. Um, and how that can sound like your, you know, vacation Bible school answer, you know, the equivalent of it's Jesus, it's all Jesus. But there are times when we know that we have been spoken to by God to go do something. It's crazy. It's outside of our boxes. And we can look around our own circles and churches and say, there's nobody here doing something like that. Mm. And and think like, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't do that. Or there will be times when you will be the outlier in your church. And actually, I want to speak to the women who feel like they don't fit in because everybody feels lonely in churches. This is the big secret. And whether you're like, I'm the only mom with young kids, or I'm the only mom who doesn't have kids, or I'm the only mom of teenagers, or I'm the only single woman, or I'm the only grandmother. I want you to know that everybody, for whatever reason, feels lonely. And the reason that that happens is because the enemy of our souls wants to make sure that we're the sheep that wander away from the fold. So everyone is going to hear that attack and that doubt. And what I want to tell you is that if you feel like you're the only one there, or you feel like you don't fit in, or you've been called to doing something where nobody else in your church is doing it, whether you're the only homeschooler or whether you're the only woman who works full time, follow your shepherd. You have gifts, time, talent, treasures, and capacities that are uniquely yours. And the shepherd has not given them to somebody else. You follow your path and do the best that you can by following God. And don't be absorbed into a ton of advice, which is hilarious because I've written three books (laughs) and I'm on a podcast with women who are giving advice all the time, right? But here it is. It is an industry and we recognize that. Okay, let's be honest about it. But you are running a race for the pleasure of God. You were running a race to see your master at the end of your life and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That is like the nail that I have hammered for 30 years. Run that race. Your race is unlike anybody else's. Listen to that voice. Look at how the Lord has arranged your circumstances and follow him with faith. Love it. Love it. Thank you. Spectacular. That is the heartbeat Thank you. of this ministry. You just know yes. exactly what we're about. And yes. Thank you. Well, Carolyn, well, it has been it's, such a joy sure. to have you on. And we've learned, we've laughed, we've learned some yes. more. And um good I haven't work. nearly enough. <laughs> well, I just want to say it's like good work in what you're doing. The filmmaking, it's making a difference in society. And um yeah. you're just you're running the race he's called you to. And yes. it's fun to um to meet you and to cheer you on in what you're doing. So thanks again for coming. Yes. On. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. My pleasure. Blessings on your work and efforts, too. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners for joining us today. Be sure to check out our website at womenwork.net for today's show notes. 
There will be more information about today's conversation there. And while you're there, we'd be honored for you to partner with us financially. If this podcast or really any of the content Women in Work produces has been a source of inspiration and encouragement to you. Women in Work is a registered 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all your donations are fully tax deductible. And please take a minute to subscribe to our show and also give us a rating and review so more listeners can find us. And with that, we hope you've been inspired to more confidently step into your God-given calling and view your work as meaningful to the kingdom of God. See you next time, friends. Thank you.